The title of this evening's talk is Through the Looking Glass, the Reality of No Self. And when I mentioned this title to someone, they said, what's a looking glass? The looking glass is a reflecting mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a a period of years, during my childhood, and on through adolescence and into my teen years, I had a recurring dream many, many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing, looking in the mirror at myself. I would be standing, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Back and back, smaller and smaller. Myself, looking at myself in the mirror seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror, endlessly. I was amazed, uh, fascinated, and at times intrigued by this recurring dream. And if I thought about it very much... (laughs) tried to figure it out, I would feel quite perplexed. But mostly, over the years of having this dream, I was just really very interested. Interested enough that it's really the only dream that I can clearly remember experiencing from my early years. this dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life. Beginning when, at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write for high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian religions. And right then I had the very distinct feeling of touching into a deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics, the three truths of all phenomena. The first being anicca, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, all situations, every relationship, every experience and the phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum. The second universal characteristic or universal truth of all things, all phenomena, being dukkha, meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world. Nothing being secure or sustaining, both in the outer world of experiences, relationships, places, situations, or material objects, and the world of all of our inner experiences of body and mind. None of it offering a sustaining sense of pleasure, a sustaining sense of happiness, but rather the dukkha of the round and round and round of pleasant and unpleasant, 
seemingly good and bad, liking and disliking. The dukkha of the round of conditioned existence. Simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all things. All phenomena being of the nature to change and to pass away. Thus making it undependable in terms of giving us any ongoing sustaining satisfaction. This evening we'll begin to explore the not-self nature, or as the Buddha sometimes called it, the non-self nature of it all. The reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, the most difficult to know and to live. And for some, though it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of no self may often be fraught with a subtle or maybe not so subtle fear. In its essence, this third characteristic, this third truth, is so basic, so simple, and that with even just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the thin veil of concept, of an idea, of belief that separates us from the reality of no self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid, and even a static me, I, them, him, her, that, it, within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experiences and within the imagined context of the possible future or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes, fears, and beliefs, to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self-identities. It's important to recognize that in letting go of our attachment, we're not asked to throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing. It's not that. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self, everything we believe to be our self, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way not even for one moment. Our so-called self is in constant flux. So, in truth, there's nothing to attach to, nothing to cling to. Essentially, all of the Buddha's teachings lead to this. In fact, the Buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the end of the extinction of clinging, that didn't lead to the end of 
clinging to unreality that didn't lead to the extinction of dukkha. He wouldn't discuss questions that didn't deal directly in some way with understanding confusion and anguish. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of life, of a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to an experiential understanding of the truth, of the way of things. He was a teacher of peace, a teacher of a very practical path to peace. The essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such sincerity, humility, and willingness that we begin to see ourself or more accurately, begin to see through ourself by directly and experientially, essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached, without all the layers of meaning we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually quite simple, but maybe not so easy. But really, really very simple. So we're sitting. Pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Yellow or red is just yellow or red. Rising and falling are merely rising and falling. Memories, just memory. Thing, thinking is merely thinking. All these things, all of these occurrences are merely, are just themselves. There are merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, cold, merely being a person. All of this in the realm of conditional, conditioned existence. There's no real, no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein, there's no real suffering in this realm of conditional or conditioned existence. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish, that we experience confusion. And this is from Nan Shin, a Chinese sage. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. We experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only just so much, just so much, just as they are? Can we look into the mirror of our self without claiming ownership, 
and without investing an interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see. We usually think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my friends, my house. This is a little bit of how we create self again and again and again. This is how we see, this is how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that they're not self is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma, looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing the truth of self, looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there is self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed, what is being investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling merely heat, merely an ache in the chest, or a tingling moving through the body, merely a thought arising and passing. No duality as it's sometimes spoken of, not two. Just this present moment being known, just as it is. Only by training ourselves again and again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, sensations, feelings, mind states, and perceptions as mere impersonal processes can the power of deeply rooted egocentric thought, habits, Self-centered inclinations be loosened and broken up, reduced, let go of, and at some point finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, not self, no self, non-self. And then finally, or just for a moment, it's not all about me. 
and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine that's based in the fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind is free. And this is from the Buddha. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine. Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma. Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma. Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma. And this is from the poet and translator Stephen Mitchell. It's his a rendition, we could say, of Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose, sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. It's a heavy load. It's a heavy burden to carry ourself around, our body, the myriad permutations of thoughts, all of the hopes and fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around all of the things of life in the form of thoughts, feelings, various perceptions and beliefs, believing that they're mine, me, myself. The burden or the sting of carrying it all with a sense of ownership and identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake, but if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught by it or caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as it's appropriate. We keep looking and seeing, living life. And in fact, living life much more freshly and fully, right in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. Right here on retreat. And 
in our life outside of retreat. For instance, as we lift a cup and fill it with water, as we sit and we notice, as we receive and simply know the gap between the outbreath and the inbreath. This is a, a poem that speaks to this by Buddhist poet Jane Hirschfield. Only when I am quiet and do not speak is the title of her poem. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy, the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant, even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not a false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that. For I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant, the actual instant. As if they believed it's possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent processes. Do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensation therein? Am I in the thigh bone or the skin or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath, me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot moving through space or in the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend? We might think, okay, Maybe I'm not the foot. Maybe I'm not the sensation of the in-breath. But certainly my mind, certainly my, my consciousness is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things that most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. As these next uh, words are spoken, just let go of listening with the intellect. Let go of 
interpreting with the intellect and just simply open and receive the words, just simply and directly hearing. Where and what is it that we call the mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape, a color, a texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body or from someone else? Do you find anything we could call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? Again, the Buddha, directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomenon. It, too, arises and passes away, moment by moment. It, too, is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors, dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It, too, is dependent on mental objects, constructs, and the clinging that arises in the conscious mind through contact. And this is the Buddha's short discourse on the characteristic of non-self, as he calls it. It's a series of questions, this discourse that, in fact, we can take to heart as a practice teaching that the Buddha repeated many, many, many times through his 45 years of teaching. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Varanasi in Deer Park. There, the Blessed One addressed the monk addressed the monks of the group of five and said this, Monks' material form is non-self. For if monks' material form were self, this material form would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to determine material form, let my form be be thus, let my form not be thus. But because material form is non-self, Material form leads to affliction, and it is not possible to determine material form, let my form be thus, let my material form not be thus. And then he goes on with the same uh, process. Feeling is non-self. Perception is non-self. Volitional formations, thoughts and actions, are non-self. Consciousness is non-self. For if monks' consciousness were self, this consciousness would not lead to affliction, and it would be possible to determine consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, let my consciousness consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is non-self, consciousness leads to affliction, and it is not possible to determine consciousness, let my consciousness be thus, 
let my consciousness not be thus. What do you think, monks? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. And then he goes on again. Is feeling impermanent or permanent? Is perception permanent or impermanent? Are volitional formations permanent or impermanent? Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. No, venerable sir. Therefore, monks, any kind of material form whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, near or far, all material form should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom. This is not mind. This is not, this I am not. This is not myself. And again he goes on. Any kind, kind of feelings whatsoever, any kind of perception whatsoever, any kind of volitional formations whatsoever, any kind of consciousness whatsoever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all consciousness should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom. Thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with material form, disenchanted with feeling, disenchanted with perception, disenchanted with volitional formations, disenchanted with consciousness. Becoming disenchanted, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassionate, his heart, his mind is liberated. Her heart, her mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it's liberated. And she understands, destroyed is birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What, has to be, what had to be done has been done. There's no more coming back to any state of being. This is what the Blessed One said. Elated, those monks delighted in the Blessed One's statements. And while this court discourse was being spoken, the minds of the monks of the group of five were liberated from the taints by non-clinging. And there were six arahants, six accomplished ones, accomplished ones in the world. Were it that so easy? Were it that easy for all of us? <laughs> The conscious mind arises and passes away, moment by moment, just like every other conditioned phenomena. Consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors, no matter how gross or how subtle that object may be. And to make this very clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six aspects or the six doors of consciousness. Ear consciousness, eye consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind consciousness or mind phenomena consciousness. It's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional. And that because of this, it can be one of the arising conditions that leads to suffering.
as awakening beings? Can we begin to directly experience and know the changing and interdependent nature of all things? And again, the mirror of the Dhamma, this time from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there is really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. and a wonderfully simple poem by Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'd like to offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of allowing the mind to open to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. Or if an image doesn't come easily for you, simply allowing a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So beginning with closing your eyes. And visualizing or sensing on some level an enormous jeweled net. A net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your heart, fill your mind. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflected, reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net. While at the same time, its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection 
of all the gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. And now let the image, let the felt sense just simply dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of no self. This is the ground of understanding, the aspect of wisdom of no self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings, we more and more often act only from the heart of compassion because of the growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There is only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it. There's no separate no isolated, independent you. No separate, isolated, independent me. And now the second guided meditation. in the mind's eye or the eye of wisdom that's centered in the heart, as my teacher Pawak says. Visualize or simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. Just relaxing and staying open and present with this. Now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving, changing shape, dissolving, new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the heart, the mind, rest in the openness of the sky, in the vast openness, not fixating on any clouds, just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the heart to rest in the vast, clear, empty, 
endless sky-like space. And now let the image fade away. And just sit for a moment, letting the heart, the mind, open wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. And now for a moment, quickly turn the awareness around to look at itself, not looking for anything, just aware of awareness itself, just knowing the knowing. Who knows? Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing. And just sitting quietly for a moment. As we learn to step back and open up and face into the looking glass, with willingness and humility. We begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in. We keep looking, whether we're standing, sitting, moving, or lying down. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. And we see that everything, all things, are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies. There's no thing that brings pleasure, joy, or ease in an ongoing or sustaining way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to render us truly happy and at ease. And as we continue to just simply humbly look into the mirror at ourself, going back and back into this looking glass of self. Mindful awareness becomes clearer and more open, more all-encompassing, more spacious. Back and back to the source of itself. Back to the source of all things. And instead of finding something solid, static, separate, or some solid rendition of I or me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. In this, there's no solid, separate I, no solid, separate other. In this emptiness, this essential emptiness, there's an ease, 
the equipoise of a deep ease of well-being, even in the midst of the arising, changing, and passing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly, mentally reside in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems, the greatest problems, the greatest suffering that we experience. We have a sense of being separate, being isolated, being a separate, isolated entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain, the cause of our fundamental suffering, the core loneliness that human beings feel. And I wanted to share uh, a true story with you. A friend of mine who was suffering from this core loneliness decided to seek the help of a therapist for the first time in his life at the age of about 40. And with the advice um, from some friends, he picked a therapist who had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. When he called the therapist's office to make the appointment, he was told by the secretary that it would be very helpful if he brought in some symbol of his problem, some symbol uh, of his concern for his first appointment, for this first therapy session. And so he told me that uh, he arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different shapes and colors and sizes. And he set them down in the waiting room. And then he said he went out to his car to get the second load of baggage of all different colors and shapes and sizes. And he told me that he had to go around collecting baggage from all of his friends and family because he didn't have enough of his own baggage. So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he of course took all of his baggage with him. Two loads full. And set it down in the therapist's office. And he said that at some point during this uh, first session, first therapy session, the therapist uh, in her wisdom, asked my friend to open up all the baggage. And there wasn't anything inside any of it. When we begin to taste the truth of no self, when we touch into this simple reality. Often at first, there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point, there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty. And very often, there's a feeling of great relief like putting down a heavy load, a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature and simply set it down. There's an old uh, teaching story about this that I really like. It's a story uh, of a woman who had practiced for many, many years and had had some powerful and even expansive experiences. 
and a number of illuminating insights. But she still felt that she hadn't really reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and uh, had the feeling that there wasn't much time left. And she so very much wanted freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she'd heard of and was told was very likely able to turn the mind, to turn the heart to the truth. As she was nearing the end of her very arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down the mountain. And just as uh, he he passed, the woman stopped and called out to him. And he stopped, and he turned around towards the woman. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up on the top of the mountain and explained that she was on her way up to see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth. She wanted to know the ultimate wisdom so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. And she explained to this man, this old man, that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion, all of her anguish and striving. And she told the old man that she'd heard that this wise one up at the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal the truth to her, the liberating truth. The old man stood still and listened and briefly looked at the woman. And then, taking his time, he slowly turned around and continued walking on down the mountain for just a few steps. And then he stopped again and briefly stood still and slowly turned around towards the woman and then very carefully took off the satchel, took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain towards the village. She met her man on the way up. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? And as I said, therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. And we keep exploring, seeing, and understanding, living life. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher. And closing the talk with some words from the Buddha. This comes from a collection called The Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. In speaking with one of his disciples uh, by the name of Bahia, This is what the Buddha said to Bahia. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus, you should see that, indeed, There is no thing here. 
This bahia is how you should train yourself. Since bahia there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard only the heard, in the sensed only the sensed, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. Let's sit together for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.